Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisor Practice Podcast based on projections, episode 15. I'm your host, Pavel Romanski, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actionable tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisor practice today. For more information and additional content, head over to snapprojections.com slash podcast. Now, let me introduce today's featured guest. Today's guest is John DeGoy. John, a CFP, CIM, fellow of FPSC, is a portfolio manager with Wellington Altus Private Wealth, an author and a Canadian authority in professional, transparent, and evidence-based financial advice. In 2003, John released his book, The Professional Financial Advisor, and just last year, in 2019, another book, Stand Up to the Financial Services Industry, and has been a frequent commentator and writer on financial matters for a number of major national media sources, including Advisor's Edge Report, Canadian Money Saver, Money Sense, The Globe and Mail, The National Post, and has made numerous appearances on a variety of television programs, including CBC's Marketplace, News World, the National BNN's Market Call, and CTV's Canada AM. John has received multiple awards for his contributions to the advancement of financial planning in Canada, including the coveted Donald J. Johnson Award and has been recognized as a fellow of FPSC. And in 2014 and 2015, Wealth Professional Magazine named him one of the top 50 advisors in Canada. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Pavel. And in fact, I should have said welcome back to the show because <laughs> there is uh, another episode that we've recorded in the past. And uh, for those that haven't listened to our conversation at the time and to your interview, this was episode 10, how to determine key assumptions when developing financial projections. And yeah. by the way, this was a very popular episode. So uh, there is a lot of interesting content, uh, useful content. So for those ones who haven't had a chance to listen to you, I should definitely encourage them to listen to that episode. So John, very excited to have you on, on the show and again. Let's jump right in. Before we actually jump into the the content today. Tell me a little bit about your firm. What do you do and who do you serve? I moved my practice to a firm called Wellington Altus Private Wealth uh, a little over a year ago at the end of 2018. It's been a joy. Wellington Altus is a not well, no longer that small. It's a company that is a little less than three years old, but right now is about to hit $10 billion in assets, which for those people who don't have a sense, no firm in Canada has ever reached $10 billion in three years before or in four years or in five years. We, we are growing faster than any firm in Canadian wide wide margin. And I believe that's because Wellington Altus has shown to be the true home for independent advice. The, uh, the advice channel is basically there are three ways that you can look at it. You can work on the mutual fund side, you can work for a bank-owned brokerage firm, or you can work for an independent brokerage firm. And I've always worked on the independent side for the brokerage industry, and it's a real pleasure to be working with a firm like Wellington Altus because it really is a champion for independence and, and non-bank-owned firms. With regard to my practice, I've been in business for 26 years. I approach, do planning work for virtually all clients, I use reasonable assumptions. I am a portfolio manager, and about 97% of the assets that I'm managing are managed on a discretionary basis. I'm currently managing about $86 million for 87 households, so just under a million dollars per family on average. And I'm delighted to be on the program with you today. Wonderful. And last question just about the intro. What made you become an advisor in the first place? Like, what was the decision point in your life earlier on to become an advisor? It's not glamorous, Pavel. It's not glamorous at all. I, I worked, I did, a gra- I did graduate work in public administration, and I wanted to be a public servant. And when I moved to Toronto from Ottawa, where I did graduate work, 
there were there are no federal jobs really in Toronto. So the the option is to work at City Hall or at Queen's Park. There were hiring freezes on in both places. And I found myself with a master's degree who had spent some time in French immersion to learn to speak French, who had done various things wanting to work in government at a time when there were literally no new government jobs to be had. And so I needed to look at my skill set and think about how I could reinvent myself. And because my background was in public policy with a, with an interest in things like trade and competitiveness and, and, and so forth and consumer issues, I was at an event and someone asked me if I would consider becoming a financial advisor. And I said, buddy, at this point, I'd consider anything. And that sort of got me on the path. And a few months later, after a few interviews and various things, I started in the business. Wonderful. Actually, I didn't know that, but it explains so much about your work and so much in terms of your involvement in, yeah. in the industry. So this is, this is fantastic. All right. So let's dig in into the topic for today's episode. And it's for this episode. And we just started the year, January. And uh, let's, we're doing all the celebration around the, the 50th episode of the podcast. We, it's been about two years for us. And I thought it would be both interesting you know, for us and, and really valuable to the listeners to really tune in about the conversation and, and talk about some of the common financial advisor myths and misconceptions. Maybe in the process, we can may, maybe unravel some of them. So, And we'll hopefully we'll mention, we'll get back to your book. So where would we start, John? What are some of those myths? I would say some people would say misconceptions or, or myths, but what, uh, what some financial advisors believe and what, why sometimes it's actually not accurate to believe in some of those things. Great. Well, I think there's a real problem, as you touched on, with reliable self-diagnosis. A lot of people, when you believe things to be true, after a while, you don't really stop and reflect upon whether your beliefs are in fact accurate and whether or not you can substantiate them with evidence. One of the things that I find is that advisors overwhelmingly use assumptions that are too high. We've talked about that before, so I don't want to belabor that, but that's one thing that I think is a, is a myth. Right. Another thing that I would say that advisors don't actively disabuse their, their clients of, and this can be something that I can touch on in a little more detail because I do some volunteer work for FP Canada with regard to a research foundation. But there's a lot of people who take their CPP either early or at the absolute latest at age 65. But if you look at it from, a, from an actuarial financial planning perspective, the very large majority of Canadians live to be beyond 81 or so. And at that point, you get more absolute dollars if you wait until your 70th birthday at the last possible opportunity to take CPP because of the difference. You get 8.4% more per year for every year that you wait, seven-tenths of 1% per month. And it's funny how a lot of people just, they, they, they have these funny things. They, they, they believe the CPP is going to go broke. It's not. It's a myth. They think they're going to die early. Uh, well, nobody knows. It's case by case. But the vast majority of them live beyond when they think they're going to and, and beyond the point where it would have been prudent to take the money sooner, which is to say most of them should wait as long as possible before getting their CPP benefits. And a lot of advisors, it seems, don't really actively disabuse them of these notions. And I, I have a theory about why that is, and it's not a particularly kind one, but because I can't prove it, I, maybe I should just not share it with you. I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, I want to dig in a little deeper. So CPP, where it should be taken earlier or later, that's definitely one of the points. But what are some of the, I would say, biggest misguided beliefs? And you know what? Let's talk about it. I mean, it's beginning of the year. 2020 oh. just started. Let's let's use the spirit of uncovering some of those beliefs and hopefully Perfect. we can make help advisors become better advisors this way. Perfect. So this is something that, that I put in the book, and it's based on an article that I, a 
research paper that was uh, released originally in December of 2016 and updated again in the summer of 2018, a paper from three American academics called The Misguided Beliefs of Financial Advisors. And they interviewed two, they, they got data sets from two Canadian MFDA firms, mutual fund companies, which were massive in the size. They, they, I think they represented something like three and a half or 4,000 advisors in almost half a million family households. And when looking at the data over whatever it was, 15 or 20 or 25 years, they showed clearly, unambiguously, without any doubt, that advisors chase past performance, they pay no meaningful attention to product cost, and they run concentrated positions. So those are the three main problems that are misguided, that all the research shows you should diversify, you shouldn't concentrate, you should not chase past performance. Every disclaimer you've ever seen in every prospectus or fun facts or advertisement says, don't do that. And cost, if, if we haven't learned that cost is an important determinant of long-term performance by now, then heavens, I don't know, I don't know what's wrong. So there are a lot of advisors that should be part of the solution, want to be part of the solution, but the really sort of ugly secret that a lot of the people in the industry don't want to have to come to terms with is that there are many advisors that are themselves part of the problem. All right. So let's talk about the cost specifically, right? Because there are some aspects of it, for example, some comments that you will hear in the industry. It's, you know, cost, it's not about the cost, it's about the value, it's about performance. How, how do you think about that? Well, cost is, is one half of the value proposition. So price is what you pay, value is what you get. So when you talk about cost, you have to think, okay, are you getting good value for money what, for what you're paying? And you know, is a Rolls Royce a good is a, a good car at two hundred thousand dollars? Well, we can have a debate about whether or not that's good value or not. Is a Rolls Royce a good car at twenty five thousand dollars? Well, now uh, you know it, it. Now it makes a little more sense. It's the same car, but it, when you change the cost, you change the value. So what I what I'm hearing from many people in the industry is that they will talk as though cost is immaterial. And certainly that's what the evidence shows. They act, they act as though cost is immaterial, when in fact the evidence is resounding. Cost is probably the most reliable determinant of long-term performance. It correlates negatively, which is to say the low-cost products perform the best. This is perhaps the only industry in the world that I've ever found where the low-cost products are the best products. If you're buying a computer or a tie or a car or whatever, Generally speaking, the more you pay, the better the quality of the product it is that you're buying relative to other options that you might have. On the investment side, the exact opposite is true. There's a gentleman by the name of John Vogel who passed away about a year and a half ago who had a very famous phrase that he used to use all the time, and that is, you get what you don't pay for. Right. In anything else in life, you get what you pay for, and the better it is, the more you pay, and, and that's generally seen as being fair. But product cost, the more product costs, the more that cost will eat into your long-term return. And the more it eats into your return, the lower that return is expected to be. So I will repeat, at the, at the risk of being repetitive, this is probably the only industry where low-cost products are actually high-quality products. In any other line of work, the, the, the better products are the more expensive ones. But it's a bit perverse. It's a bit counterintuitive. 
And I think many of your listeners, many, many investors might not be aware of it, but it's, it's a bit shocking that it, there are advisors out there who either are not aware of it or who act as though it doesn't matter when it very clearly does. Right. So this is kind of the part of the debate, passive versus active as well. And John Bogle, of course, founder of Vanguard, I, th- I think started around 1970, 71, I think, or two. So number of things to dig in here, because first of all, you mentioned the financial services might be one of the industries that when usually the lowest, lowest cost products are, are the best performing. Is this, when we look back, for example, last, I don't know, 50, 60 years, the returns, for example, that we had in 90, for example, let's say, again, 30, 40 years ago, were maybe a little higher than we are going to experience over the next decade, especially. I've been looking at various projections, both from Vanguard, BlackRock, a number of other providers, and depending on the segment, depending on the market, we're looking at you know, three, four, maybe maximum 7%. And this is nominal. This is not even real. So do you think that maybe some of those beliefs about it's not about it's not about the cost, it's about performance and similar beliefs is because the, mar- the, the world has changed. We cannot, we can maybe not predict double-digit returns from over the next you know, 10, maybe 20 years. In the low interest rate environment, this the world is just different, right? So, is this where you know in this wor- world that we are going to have lower nominal returns and cost matters more? Is this why I would say this problem becomes more evident at this point? One would hope. It's funny, Pavel, because if it were if the world really truly made sense, the things that you just mentioned in the past two or three minutes would have been self evident for the past twenty years because it's always been true. It's just that as returns and expected returns become gradually lower, it becomes more and more relevant. It doesn't become truer. It was always true. But some people don't mind paying two and a quarter percent when they're getting 10, but they, they very much might be a little more concerned if they were only getting six and a quarter beforehand and now all they're getting is four. And so I think it will drive the point home and I think it will sharpen the mind and, and bring certain questions into focus in a way that perhaps hadn't been brought into focus in the past. It was, it's always been true, but I think it will be more top of mind going forward than it has been in the past, yes. Okay, so one more question around it, because from what Van Leer believes, what actually John Bogle believed as well, stock markets, I would say, chasing returns that are, or picking stocks and, and not investing passively, for example, in index is a zero-sum game. Right. However, the stock market on its own, I mean, it, it goes up every single, well, typically, it's not every single year, of course, but it's it's predicted on average every single year that is going to go up because the earnings of the corporations will grow and the dividends will go up. So, so the question is, how do you think about that from the zero-sum game perspective? Is this really trying to basically pick you know, the best, for example, maybe not even stocks, but maybe the event sectors when we talk about yeah. you know, maybe sector-tilted ETFs, for example? Well, let me, let me say this. I, I, I don't personally tilt towards sectors in, in the products that I recommend to clients. The way I would portray the decision-making is that there are three main options. You can use passive index tracking products. You can use, which are generally the cheapest, maybe 20 basis points on average. You can use factor-based products, which will tilt towards certain factors, things like small cap and value. They generally cost a bit more, maybe 40 basis points. Or you can use a traditional active product where you can have someone who's making buy and sell decisions on your behalf higher trading costs, and in an F-class mutual fund environment, that might cost, say, 120 base points. So that's what they cost. And then the question that it then becomes that, that then becomes relevant is, well, does it represent good value? And that's where reasonable people can differ. But I would argue that the first two 
most of the time recommend good value. And the third one, most of the time does not. I've got a story I can tell you, Pablo. May I tell you a quick story about a, a presentation that I gave to a Absolutely. room full of planners a couple of years ago? Part, I was you. at a conference in Ottawa where I was asked to speak to a number of certified financial planners at the annual conference for uh, the Canadian Institute of Financial Planners, CIFPS. And I was speaking at a breakout session at their annual meeting, and there were maybe 35 or 40 other CFPs in the room. And I asked them, I had this discussion about value, and I said, let's talk about cars to begin with. Let's say there are three different cars. I want you to think about the three cars, and you tell me which one represents the best value. You can get an entry-level car that costs $20,000. You get a, a mid-tiered car, like, like what many of you drive, that would cost maybe $40,000, or you can get a luxury sedan, you know, maybe a you know a high-end Tesla or BMW for $120,000. Which of those three vehicles represents the best value? And I asked by a show of hands. And some people chose the $20,000 car, and some people chose the $40,000 car, and no one chose the $120,000 car. So then I said, okay, now let's let's just turn the uh, turn the table here, and let's say let's say you have a client with a million dollars to invest over the next decade. And you can use products that cost 20 basis points, 0.2%, or you can use products that cost 40 basis points, 0.4, or you can use mutual funds that cost 120 basis points, 1.2%. It doesn't take long before you realize that the sum of those dollar amounts over that decade are 20000 40000 and $120,000. It's funny because virtually every single person in the room had 100% of their clients invested in products that cost 120 basis points. Yet when I asked them that same question only with regard to cars instead of investment products, none of them thought the 120 basis point products represented the best value. So it's funny because there's a certain amount of do as I say, not as I do going on among the financial advisors that I come across. They will say, oh, I'm, I'm doing what's best for my clients. And of course, I'm trying very hard. And I don't doubt that they try very hard but they don't seem to be particularly fussed about the evidence that suggests that what they're doing is in fact not only not working, but in fact counterproductive. And there's a bit of cognitive dissonance. And I think there's a certain amount of advisors think, well, this is the way we've always done things around here. And after a while, it becomes self-perpetuating. People just do things because that's the way things are done. And many advisors aren't sufficiently self-aware, self-critical, intellectually curious to stop and say, well, wait a minute, am I really doing it the right way? That makes sense. Okay, so let's. I started going on an angle of the cost because that's that's really where the industry is really focused right now, especially yeah. if you watch TV. <laughs> so yeah. okay, so let's maybe do the conversation. Maybe the conversation shouldn't be about whether it's uh, you know, competing in the stock market as is your sum game, but as you laid out, it's basically mm-hmm. passive to, uh, sector tilted, maybe ETFs or maybe active, and there's different costs. Okay, so let's talk a little more about why you think is that's the case. I mean, there's a the scientific paper, chasing past returns, concentrated positions, cost, of course. So let's explore this a little bit further. I mean, why do you think, really, even though there is academic evidence that these uh, activities or behaviors are not adding value to investors, why advisors would end up basically doing what uh, what they shouldn't be doing? I'm going to go back to something that I talked about in my, my previous book, The Professional Financial Advisor. I've got a chapter in that book called Education or Indoctrination. And this is something that I find particularly true of the MFDA registrants that I come across. I don't want to pick on them, but my experience is just that they, they are more susceptible to what I'm about to say than the IROC registrants. And that is that they work on the assumption that the product that they tend to recommend, which is to say an actively managed mutual fund, 
is just the best product out there. When you when you make your living as a commission-based inferior mousetrap salesman, the last thing you're going to do is recommend or even ask about whether or not there's a better mousetrap on the market. And so as a result, what we have here is an industry that has sort of frozen itself in time where there's the presumptive value proposition of a certain segment of the product market that they that they offer, which is to say actively managed embedded compensation mutual funds, which may not be best for clients, but the people who recommend products have always recommended both products that are actively managed and embedded compensation. And as a result, they just can't seem to turn the corner and think about it from a different perspective. Another example that I would give is that in 1964, the U.S. Surgeon General released a report saying, here's a surprise, cigarette smoke causes cancer. And there was a real problem when that happened because at the time, 64%, sorry, at that time, 42% of Americans were smokers, but also at the same time, 50, fully half, 50% of American physicians were smokers. Mm -hmm. So now we have people who are supposed to be part of the solution, the doctors who have taken a Hippocratic oath to do no harm and to help their clients do well, who have to come to terms with ironclad evidence that shows that what they themselves have been oftentimes recommending or at least condoning, and in many instances engaging in themselves, is in fact a harmful practice. And it was especially challenging for some doctors because, as you know, smoking cigarettes can be addictive. So even if they understood intellectually that what they were doing was harmful, they, they were caught in the net because they couldn't actually kick the habit themselves. So it would be very difficult for them to wag their finger at their patients to say, you know, don't do this when they themselves are popping away. Mm-hmm. So there's there's something like that. And, and that's actually one of the things that the misguided beliefs paper found with regard to advisors is the reason it was so pervasive is that in the past, the thinking had been that advisors make these recommendations because you know, there's an agency issue. You know, they, they want to recommend this product and they buy it themselves because they want their clients to, to buy them. And so they buy it themselves as a means of encouraging the client that it's a perfectly fine product and, and so on and so forth. Well, what the, what the misguided beliefs paper actually showed was that advisors engage in these practices, chase past performance, don't pay attention to cost and, and run concentrated positions, even for their own accounts, even after they retire from the business. So it's not that they're doing it because they have an ulterior motive. It's they're doing it because they honestly believe that it makes sense, but it doesn't. Wow. <laughs> yeah. What can you say about that? It's terrifying. So what can we do to turn the ship around? I tried for almost a generation. I started writing the professional financial advisor at the turn of the millennium in January of 01 to get advisors to come to terms, to look look themselves in the mirror and face their own demons and and acknowledge their own deficiencies to, to do things differently and better. And I put out four editions of the professional financial advisor. And I think it's fair to say that I was more or less roundly ignored by my peers, which is to say they didn't really want to listen to what I had to say because they were pretty sure they had it all figured out in the first place. The new book that I just released earlier, well, last year now, because it's now 2020, but I released it in May of 2019 called Stand Up to the Financial Services Industry, actually is written for individual clients. And the, the idea here is to get the investors to realize that their advisors are part of the problem. They may be a nice guy. I don't impugn their intentions. In fact, the, sub, the subtitle of the book is Protecting Yourself from Well-Intended but Oblivious Advisors. So this is not, and I, and I really must stress this, this is not to cast aspersions on other advisors' intentions. 
I have no doubt that their heart is in the right place. The problem is that in spite of that, they're doing it wrong. And if you're if you're giving bad advice with good intentions, the fact of the matter is, if you're getting that advice, you're still getting bad advice. And and I don't think you should condone good intentions if the evidence is that the advice should be different. Uh, you know, the, the the doctor who says, "Well, I I just I wanted cigarette smoke to be benign, so I told my patient they could keep on smoking." You know, I I didn't really mean any harm. Uh, that might cut it for a bit, for a while, but now that there's, pardon the pun, smoking gun evidence that what they're doing is incorrect, it really does behoove the advisor to change. And I've tried for four editions of the previous book to get them to change, and they refuse to. I think right now the only real solution is for individual investors to take it upon themselves to challenge their advisors to say, this is what I need. I, I need advice that does not chase past performance or run concentrated positions or, or um, pay no attention to cost. I need you to do things properly. So what I would say is that there are, there are basically three steps that people have to take. The first is they actually have to convince themselves that they need to summon up the courage to actually walk into their advisor's office and ask tough questions. And we're Canadians. Canadians don't really like to rock the boat. You know, we're, we're docile. We, we don't Absolutely. like confrontation. So that's problem number one. But then assuming you can get over that, you've got to ask questions. You've got to ask, so people say, well, I'll ask the questions if you just give me the questions to ask. So the new book, Stand Up to the Financial Services Industry, has about 50 questions, specific questions that you can ask. And so, okay, I'll spoon feed you the questions too. So, okay, I've got the courage, I've got the questions. And now comes the hardest part. The third, the third part where you really have to turn the corner is, your advisor, who's a nice guy, who you've liked, who you've worked with for maybe 10 or 20 years, is going to give you an answer that sounds plausible, and you've got to be able to call bullshit if that's not what the evidence shows. So you actually need to be able to discern whether the, the answer you get from your advisor passes muster. And the only way to do that is to check the answers that you're given against what the evidence shows. So I've also released, a, I've also put out a new website. The, uh, the URL is standup.today with a few sample questions, but also with six or seven or eight of the best bits of research that show what the facts are. So that if the advisor says, well, it's, it's not what you pay, it's what you get in return. Well, here's a paper from William, from William F. Sharp. He's won a Nobel Prize, and he shows that investing is a zero-sum game before cost and a negative-sum game after cost. So he's written a peer-reviewed journal. The guy's a Nobel Prize winner. Are you honestly going to tell me that you know better than a Nobel laureate? So those are the sorts of things that, that investors can do to hold their advisors accountable. And the problem is right now, advisors, no one's holding them to account because no one really has the tools to do it. And I'm hoping this changes things. But the other thing is that we're just too accepting. And Canadians, fees are too high and advice is too spotty and inconsistent because it can be, because there's not enough being done to really hold advisors accountable for the things that they're saying that are not demonstrably true. Absolutely. So, uh, well, I can definitely see the public surveying you right now. And uh, because it's a tough Monday, especially in Canada, you're uh, basically bringing to light some of the information that I'm sure part of the industry wouldn't want actually to be examined that closely. Right. So let's talk a little bit about what advisors should believe in. Like if you want to become a better advisor, let's let's maybe uh, go through a number of, I would, I would say, I don't know, beliefs that, that advisors should believe uh, that are verified. And let's go step by step. Let's, let's, let's try to examine a little bit more closely what we should be believing right now, given the evidence that we have right now. One of the things that I think people should, that advisors should believe more in is the emerging evidence surrounding behavioral economics and more specifically, in some instances, behavioral finance. 
So there's a gentleman by the name of Daniel Kahneman who won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2002 for his work in prospect theory. He won it with another guy who is less well-known, Vernon Smith. But his research partner, Amos Tversky, the Nobel people don't give out Nobels posthumously, but Tversky would have shared the, the prize with uh, Kahneman. And Kahneman really did a lot to help people to understand things like regret and remorse and anchoring and overconfidence and, and those sorts of things. And I think any advisor who is worth his or her salt would do very well to understand that where the rubber hits the road is in the behavior that they um, that they help to enforce or disabuse their clients of. When you ask a typical advisor what he or she does for a living, many of them will say, "Well, I you know I recommend products and I help my clients save taxes and and whatever." But some of the enlightened ones will go a little bit further and say, "I help my clients by engaging in behavioral coaching by getting them to save hundred dollars more every month in their RSP." And, and to think about whether they should be putting their contributions into their TFSA rather than their RSP and to think about income splitting and to prepare a will and update their insurance and so forth. Some of those are coaching things that are just general, but sometimes it, it comes down to things that are behavioral because people will, you know, they'll want to buy, they'll want to buy U.S. stocks because U.S. stocks were up 23% in 2019. Well, yeah, you, everyone should have some U.S. stocks. And yes, U.S. stocks were up 23% in 2019, but the past is not necessarily a prologue. It might actually mean that the U.S. stock market, as I believe, and as other people like another Nobel laureate, Robert Schiller, would believe, that the U.S. stock market is, in fact, extremely expensive right now. And if anything, one of the things that, that probably the most basic bit of behavioral coaching is buy low, sell high. And you should be buying a number of things and buying a diversified basket of things all the time for your clients. But I think there are a lot of advisors who will just as happily sell what's easy to sell. And if the client wants to buy something that's gone up a lot recently on the misguided premise that it's going to continue to go up in the future because the past is not necessarily prologue, then there are some advisors that are only too happy to facilitate that in, in pursuit of you know, a, a quick sale or some, some fees or commissions. Whereas I believe a more enlightened, purposeful advisor will say, well, wait a minute, you, you've got too much of this asset class or this sector or this security already. Maybe we should find things that are better to counterbalance the, the risk-reward trade-offs that are required in portfolio construction. And specifically, maybe we should consider buying this, which actually went down last year or whatever. So those are the sorts of things that I think advisors, at a, at a basic level, that's the sort of thing that I think advisors can can help with. And I touched on this a few minutes ago. I I have for the past little while now been sitting on a the research foundation board for for FP Canada. And so we do we do research into financial planning across the country. And in the past few months I've taken over as the chair of that research board. And one of the things that we've we've come out with is a paper about something called the implementation gap. So when it comes to financial planning, when when people use snap projections to do a financial independence projection or what have you for a client, the, the planner might actually one run the client through to do the proper diagnostics and do the discovery and then say, okay, based on this savings rate and this assumed rate of return, which hopefully will be reasonable and so on and so forth, we're going to get you to the point where you can retire at 65 and not run out of money until you're 92 and, and here's what it looks like. That's one thing and that's what the plan looks like. But in the real world, people don't always implement what was agreed to in the plan. 
So one of the things that the Research Foundation uh, is looking into is this so-called implementation gap, where what can be done to help planners to help their clients to follow through on the plan that was written and the specific steps that need to be taken so that the outcome that is desired is in fact attained. And those are the sorts of purposeful questions where you don't just do the plan once and, and, and then deliver it to the client. And clients have an agency issue too, because clients oftentimes, when they receive the financial plan, they'll say, oh, good, I've got a financial plan, I'm good now. And they never, they, they might thumb through it when they get it, but then they put it in a drawer and they never look at it again. It's not an ongoing iterative thing. It's not the sort of thing that they refer to and update regularly. Um, there are ads going on right now from uh, from BMO talking about how they how their their people update financial plans in real time and how that can actually be a real benefit. That's the sort of thing I want to I want to give BMO props for running that ad campaign because I think that's a good example of what needs to be done in financial planning in the 2020s. It needs to be the sort of thing that you don't just get once and then say, okay, I've got it and put it away and don't even refer to it. It's the sort of thing that you refer to frequently. It's the sort of thing that you update when circumstances change. It's the sort of thing that uses reasonable assumptions and and is awake, you know, where you're actually thinking about all the possible things, good and bad, that might actually come to pass. Perfect. So let's me summarize just at least a couple of things that from what you said. So the really what good advisors, I would say, should engage in is definitely behavioral coaching and being, being really aware of behavioral economics, behavioral coaching. Then in terms of uh, portfolio construction, of course, there's a lot more, uh, but there's definitely diversification, not chasing past returns. You mentioned comprehensive financial planning or really adequate financial planning, whether it's module planning or, or retirement planning or comprehensive financial planning. It depends on the situation. Then there is this implementation gap. So that's really interesting. And we've been actually looking at that as well. I just had a conversation with another advisor, actually a planner yesterday about the implementation gap. So that's, I'm really curious to see what kind of research is, is going to come from that. And then you mentioned reasonable assumption. What else? What else good advisors can help their clients to achieve better outcomes, better returns, better chance of basically meeting their goals? Well, we talked in the past about comprehensive planning. So you need to make sure that everything is being looked at and looked after. So you know, do you have the right amount of insurance? Uh, do you have the right kind of insurance? Have you really discussed this with your children? Are your children aware of what your wishes are? Are you sure that you've you know thought things through? Can you do things to to lower your taxes? Are you filing on time and accurately? And 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 so there's a whole bunch of other things that advisors. There's a misconception out there. Advisors are thought of as being people who just invest and and help people with investing. And I think that's probably fair to say that that's the core competency and the main element of what most people do. Certainly, I'm a portfolio manager, so that would probably be what I would say is the the main thing that takes up most of my time when I'm in the office, but there are a lot of other things that maybe are less less obvious that I think can help if if done in a purposeful, repeated manner can ultimately help people to have a better outcome, but they don't show up on a statement. You know, encouraging people to name a beneficiary in an RRSP or, or whatever, or following up or following right. up to make sure that you updated your will or your power of attorney. Those are the sorts of things that never show up on a statement, but can have a massive, massive impact on a person's life and lifestyle. Absolutely. Just like having insurance or not having insurance in place. So it's definitely a problem with basically, on one hand, as an advisor, you need to deliver value. On the other hand, you have to demonstrate the value. And right. uh, again, that's going to be probably a big focus for us this year, just not only enabling advisors to just use financial planning software in the right way and, and achieve what they want to do and build the plans, but also 
demonstrate at the same time the value that they le- delivered in a planning process because because planning is not just entering the numbers into the planning software and just generating pretty report. I mean, there's so much more than that. But again, the problem has been for a long time in the industry is how do we show the value? How do we demonstrate the right. value? In a lot of cases, you've probably seen probably across your clients as well that the value for different clients is, is different every single year. So that's 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 the kind of the cracks here. So we touched on the, on the research in the foundation. Is there anything else in terms of the, the projects, uh, especially you know this year? What what else do you want to explore? I'm I'm really curious in terms of what you're going to be working on. Well, I, I those are the main projects that we're working on right now. I I think it's it's safe to say that the the, the mandate of the research foundation is to look for meaningful financial planning concepts that can be explored and be implemented quickly and easily readily by planners and Canadians across across the spectrum. A lot of research, and I mean a lot, is being done and has been done for years and years on you know how to get a better how to get a better return by by focusing on small cap stocks or by or by trading in a certain way or using algorithms and and, and tax loss harvesting and, and various other things like that on the investment side. There have just been hundreds of research papers on trying to, you know, squeeze out every last basis point of, of incremental return. There has been very little research done really anywhere, but especially in Canada with regard to applied financial planning. So the research that the, the Research Foundation is doing is actually looking at how can we find things that will move the, move the yardsticks in terms of financial planning that can be easily understood, readily applied, and hopefully adopted by planners across the board in order to enhance the lives of the clients they serve. It's not academic because a lot of the, as I was saying, there's been very little research done in Canada with regard to applied financial planning, but even in other parts of the world, and I guess I'm looking at the United States where there's been more research that's been done in the past on financial planning, it's one academic writing a a research paper to be read only by other academics that has virtually no applicability in the real world, and it's just it's just um, you know uh, academics getting off on on minutia and esoteric things that are of very little value. That's not what we do here. The the research foundation board here in Canada is very much focusing on bread and butter issues that are easy to understand, easy to implement, and widely widely necessary. And the, the problem is. Because so little research has been done, we have like a blank slate. We can look into almost anything. And I will say that uh, the preponderance of the research that we've been doing for the past two or three years has been largely behavioral because that really is where the rubber hits the road. I think uh, the the hard issues, the left brain, logical, crunch the numbers issues are the sorts of things where anyone can, if got good software, can, can take the numbers and plug them into the software. But as you quite properly said a moment ago, it's so much more than that. It's uh, sitting down and helping the, the people really navigate where they want to go with their life and, and make decisions along the way based on circumstances and, and what they might be able to change within their own control to get the outcome that they want. Absolutely. Well said. So a couple of questions, John, here before we wrap up. So we started with this guided beliefs of financial advisors with papers. I think we covered quite a lot of, a lot of ground there. And we also are talking about the research. Is there anything else what uh, you think it's you know, misunderstood to when it comes to wealth management financial planning here in Canada? Let me say this. When we talked earlier off the top of the, uh, the, the podcast about how there are three main elements of misguided beliefs. So, you know, they chase past performance, they run concentrated positions, and they don't pay attention to cost. And people are sort of shocked when they learn that advisors have these misguided beliefs. And I want to talk about two things associated with that. 
and that is the questions that you that you would normally ask. The first question that almost everyone asks is when they learn this, they say, well, why is that? And in fact, even in, earlier in the podcast, you asked me to speculate as to why that is. And, and I don't, I'm a bit uncomfortable speculating as to why that is. All I know is that for a fact, it is. It's, it's beyond any reasonable doubt that advisors have these misguided beliefs. And we can, we can all conjecture as to why it may be, but I would actually argue that that's actually secondary. The much more interesting and the much more purposeful question that I think you should be asking is, so now that we know that advisors have these finance, these misguided beliefs, the real question is, what are you going to do about it? Right. And, and that's where we get into the behavioral question of, if, if you say, well, advisors have these misguided beliefs because of X, Y, Z, you go, oh, okay, now I know why. And, and then you go home and nothing happens. But if you say, advisors have these misguided beliefs, I don't know why, but the fact of the matter is they have them, and you're at risk because you're, being, you're getting advice from people who believe things that are simply not so. Um, what are you going to do about that? And so that's actually a, a quote from Mark Twain. You know, Mark Twain's, uh, it's perhaps apocryphal because nobody can actually prove that he said it. So that's actually sort of delicious. But he says it's, it's, it's not what we, what we believe that's, uh, what, it's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. Right. And there are a lot of advisors that know certain things for sure that actually just ain't so. And, and th- they're getting into trouble and they're getting their clients into trouble and their clients are not reaching their financial goals. Because these things just ain't so, but unfortunately, everyone, the clients and the advisors, are oblivious to the fact that what they're doing is wrong. One other thing that I can share with you, uh, actually, Pavel, I was at a um, symposium about five or six months ago, put on by a company called BE Works, a company that's run by, founded by Dan Ariely, who's written a number of books, predictably irrational and the upside of irrationality, and you, you may know him, he's done eight or ten TED, he's a professor at Duke. And one of the one of the things that came out in the lunch speaker was about a paper called the Dunning Kruger effect, and I had never heard of this before. So, alas, it's not in the book. But there are these two uh, professors from Cornell originally; they're they're not there now, uh, named David Dunning and Justin Kruger, who actually put out a, a peer-reviewed, really really good paper, showing that part of the problem is that some people are too dumb to recognize that they're dumb. So it's a bit of a delicate thing because you don't want it's, you don't want to be politically incorrect, but they've actually shown that this is actually true. You know, there's a, there's a deficit of self-awareness, you know, the overconfidence, 80% of the people think they're above average drivers. That can't be possible. Right. We have a situation here where I believe a lot of financial advisors are misguided because they don't have the wherewithal to recognize that they're misguided. So one thing about if you're at a certain level of self-awareness, you can at least recognize that you're not as good as you think you are and then take steps to correct and, 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 and otherwise adjust what you're doing so that you're less bad at what you do. But if you're so bad at what you do that you can't even recognize that you're bad at what you do, you're never going to get better because as far as you're concerned, you're doing it fine and you don't know any better. And alas, I don't want to sound mean, but I think that's really what the problem is for, for many financial advisors in Canada. They're, they're actually so lacking in self-awareness that they're doing it wrong, and they, they can't even fathom the possibility that they've been doing it wrong all these years. I think it certainly is uh, part of a problem. I think I think the problem, as usual, is very complex, and, and there is an mm-hmm. industry that's influencing some of the decisions. Of course, as you alluded, there's different. There's a lot of you know, there's regulation. There is a lot of things that that sort of is affecting where what we have right now in Canada. Unfortunately, investors, individual investors, are, are affected. But the good thing is that there are some really great advisors in Canada, and I think yep. by the work that you've done, 
and, yeah. and you're doing. And I applaud you. It's hard work. I think there's a lot of people that won't won't agree with you. I'm sure they will at least respect you for what you're doing. But well, <laughs> I've read I've read your your book, and I just want to say that yeah, the, the stand up to the financial services industry. It's insightful. It's good. It's valuable. I'm I'm really glad that you wrote this book. Thank you very much, Pavel. And I think it's going to it's going to cause some controversy in the industry. But I think that's good because we can yeah we can get better as the industry. And I think I, I think that's really the, the the point here. That's why you're doing this. You're doing very tough work, very difficult work. And 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 again, there will be some criticism for sure. But I'm sure there's a lot of people that they're really happy and, and content about the work. And I think there's a lot of there will be a lot of investors, individual investors that will actually benefit from from your work and will start asking about questions. And again, the industry is going to get better. Yeah, and I think and there is actually in the final chapter for those people who are listening that are advisors, it's a it's a short, easy read, 170 page book. But the last chapter actually has a bit of a self help sort of thing where. I couldn't help myself, even though I tried to write this book just, just for investors and not for advisors. I did put a section in the final chapter to say, look, your, your, if your clients read this, they're going to, they're going to go to, they're going to go to standup.today. They're going to look at the questions. They're going to download the research. They're going to maybe print it off and shove it under your nose and ask you to explain for yourself. But if you really are an advisor who wants to do what's right, don't just say, Oh, I'm sorry. And then keep on doing it the way you've always done it. The sincerest apologies change behavior. So there's a section in the final chapter where I actually help advisors to do the heavy lifting, to actually become familiar with their research, to disabuse themselves of the things that are in that are inaccurate, and and to actually start to encourage them to start giving advice based on evidence rather than wives' tale. And hopefully, in time, evidence will will, will prevail. And people will make recommendations based on evidence. I'm, I'm a bit like um, one of my heroes right now these days is Greta Thunberg, because Greta Thunberg at age 16 is doing sort of for the climate change file what I'm trying to do for the financial services file, which is just repeat over and over and over and over. Look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. This is what the evidence says. Don't take it from me. I'm just a kid. And don't take it from me. I'm just John DeGuy. I'm just one guy. But you know, here's the evidence. This is written by Nobel Prize winners. This is don't take it from me. Take it from Eugene Fama. Take it from Bob Schiller. Take it. Take it from Richard Thaler. Take you know. Take it from um, Bill Sharp. When you have these sorts of people with with all their gravitas saying this is what works and this is what doesn't work, if you're going to continue to doing to, to do things in a way that clearly doesn't work, I would actually argue that you as the advisor are pretty chock a block full of hubris and not really particularly interested in, in doing what is right. You're, you're like a, you're like a physician that says, well, I, I smoke and I like smoking and I want to keep on smoking. So I don't really care what the surgeon general says. And that to me is just unconscionable. Well, as being a public servant as you are at the core, uh, you can't ignore that. Right. So I totally understand that and uh, agree with what you said. So I think this is a perfect place for us to wrap up. So John, this podcast is all about growing your practice. And we spend a lot of time today talking how you can become better advisor. Do you have any parting words wisdom for listeners just one thing to end up yeah for the listeners for those of you who whether you buy the book or not stand up to the financial services industry you should go to the website standup.today to to read the research and and use the questions there to hold your advisor accountable but the the final message is no one is going to care more about your money than you and if you as an investor skate through life thinking oh i think my advisor's got this the problem is the problem is twofold. Number one, number, number one, your advisor thinks he's got it too, and number two, your advisor doesn't have it. Your advisor is doing it wrong in all in many many instances. Obviously, it's case by case. 
But if you have an advisor who has good intentions, but is nonetheless doing it wrong, it's up to you. No one's going to care more about your money than you to, to determine whether or not you're getting good advice and then to get your advisor to change to give you good advice if he's doing it wrong. And finally, to switch advisors if your advisor refuses to switch. But at any rate, no matter how you get there, at the end of the day, you have to ensure that you're getting good advice. And that's on you, the investor. It's a great message. So, Johnny, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, maybe uh, comment, provide additional information, additional uh, sources, or just be, you know, get in touch with you and maybe uh, join your journey or mission. What's the best way to reach you at this point? The best way to reach me is on my office line, 416-369-1502 or via email, which is john.degui at wprivate.ca. So I'll repeat that again, john.degoey at wprivate.ca. Give me a call or drop me a note, and I'll be happy to respond. Wonderful. And we will link up, of course, your book, your your website, and there's a Twitter handle as well. They can probably reach you this way as well Yep. to this podcast episode. So, John, thank you very much for coming to the show with this important message. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode. If you enjoyed it, I would really appreciate if you left us a great review in iTunes because that helps us get discovered. And if you want to get in touch with us, please email podcast at snapprojections.com. Thanks, and I'll talk to you next time.